Well, how does one introduce Miss Donna Palmberg? I've been thinking about this question all week. What must we say? What should we say? How do we <laughs> make way for Donna? And so here's what, here's what I landed on. How many of you were, assault, I mean, um, met with, by Donna in the lobby in some way, and you were sort of brought into the church? There we go. This is all that needs to be said about you, Donna. Come on up and tell us a story. <laughs> oh, fun. Well, that is really fun to see your hands go up because I always like to greet people and make them feel welcome, so I'm glad that you raised your hands. Okay, I've been excited to do this. When Peter proposed this idea, I wrote to him right away, and you'll find out why from my story. I was raised in a solid Christian family and led to Jesus as a child. I remember renewing my faith at around nine years old and again when tragedy hit our family. We had moved from Detroit. My dad was with Michigan Tool Company and they had built a branch in, in Traverse City up in the little finger of Michigan. And when I was, that was when I was 13 and six months after we moved there, we, we had a waterfront property on Grand Traverse Bay, and my eight-year-old brother drowned, fell through the ice with two of his friends, another eight-year-old and 11-year-old. It was a terrible tragedy for our family. Then, that the first summer before all that happened, the West Bay Covenant Church in Traverse City actually began with a prayer meeting in our cottage that we were living in while our house was being built adjacent on the adjacent property. By September, when a Sunday school was begun, begun in the local school, my dad was the Sunday school superintendent, and at 13, I was active playing the piano and teaching children in the Sunday school. During those teenage years, I remember even thinking, I might even enjoy being a pastor's wife someday. <laughs> While at North Park University in Chicago, this idea did not deter me from dating other boys who were going into other professions. However, when God bought, brought Bud into my life and we married in 1957, I had no hesitation about being a partner in ministry with him, and I've always enjoyed it. By 1966, we had Jeff, who many of you know, he used to be youth pastor here, and um, he was a toddler and our 11-month-old Chrissy, who a lot of you know, Chrissy Dotson. I was very busy as a mother while trying to be support, a supportive wife in our ministry in Kiwani, Illinois. But I often secretly felt frustrated about my own depth of faith as I would have a lot of ups and downs. When Bud mentioned that he'd like us to go to California for a conference to learn more about sharing our faith, I inwardly rebelled and I, did, but I, and I didn't pray about it. He thought I probably was, but I wasn't because I was feeling it was impossible with our two little ones. However, when he proposed it to the church leadership, they strongly supported it, giving time away that wasn't vacation time and financial support. And before I knew it, evidently Bud had been on the phone when I didn't know it because Bud's parents offered to have the children stay with them in Nebraska on our way across the country. So at that point, I realized that maybe God had something in mind for me. 
So we made it to California, even though Bud got the flu while we were going through the Grand Canyon. After the very first session at Arrowhead Springs Conference Center in San Bernardino, I was so moved and challenged, and I think Bud remembers this, I fell the very second day we were there. After that session, I fell on my bed on my face sobbing. I remember it to this day. I realized that though I had confidence in my salvation and was always challenged by Bud's sermons, I had not been living with an awareness that I could experience the Holy Spirit's guidance on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. What I learned during that week in large settings and in my small group made the greatest change in my life. And to this day, Pastor Peter's sermon on Colossians 2 is the most meaningful passage for my day-to-day -day living. Ten years ago, Bud and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary and we rented a houseboat over on Lake Roosevelt in eastern Washington for a few days and took all of our family with us. There were 12 of us, and what a time we had, sliding off the back of the slide, you know, into that icy cold water, but I had floaties for everybody. And while Bud waited uh, for us, he was in the hot tub on the top deck waiting for us to come and join him. During those days, our son Jeff and his son, Joey, memorized Psalm 37 while making up signs for it so they could, you know, really remember it. And because the verses in Colossians have meant so much to me over the years, I decided to compose a little song that would be fun to, for the kids to sing, so in order for them to really learn that part of Colossians too. So I got off by myself, and they, they did it. They learned the song. And this last week, my 24-year-old grandson, Joey, sang it for me. I'm so grateful that he and I know the, many of the others, maybe all of them, have remembered it. So this is the song. You've accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, so keep on following him. I've got to start over. I'm in the wrong key. <laughs> You've accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, so keep on following him. Plant your roots in Christ and let him be the foundation of your life. Be strong in your faith, just as you were taught, and be grateful. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Don't let anyone fool you by making senseless arguments. These arguments may sound wise, but they are only human teachings. They come from the powers of this world, but not from Christ. God is fully in Christ, and you are fully known, because you belong to Christ, who is over every power and authority. Now, you know, each of us as believers have spiritual gifts. And my counselors during that week in 1966, they helped me to recognize that I have a gift of evangelism because they observed how I became so excited when I would have the opportunity to lead someone to Christ in a personal way. And you know, since that time, wherever we have lived during these almost 60 years of marriage, I have shared the gospel personally with numerous people of all ages, the latest being my watercolor instructor at Covenant Shores. I've seen his burdens lifted as his wife is in a, in a care center for the last five years. And he has had his life, he's turning 86 in another month. And he's told me that he feels like 50 pounds has been lifted from his shoulders since he 
confirmed his faith in, in Jesus. Now he's painting big paintings and giving them as gifts to people that show a, a person walking into the light and he's calling it a time with him. It has been such a blessing. And you know what thrills me most is if a friend re responds to the call of Jesus with me, I always read these verses from Colossians to them as encouragement. So this morning I'm going to read the scripture from the book of Colossians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. And I'm going to be reading Colossians 2, 2 to 15 in the New American Standard Bible. A true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of body of the flesh, but by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having give, forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public, spec, a, a public display of them, having triumphed over them, through him, the word of the Lord. Donna, thank you. That was great. Uh, today, the title of the sermon in our series is called Christus Victor. And uh, even if you don't know, uh, these strange words, you know what they mean. Christ is victor, right? He's the one who is triumphant. And uh, it's kind of a cliche, and I've heard this many times. Uh, but what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ is victor? What I want to do today is talk about Christ as victor in a sort of a, as practical of a way as possible. Christ as victor is what we call one of the atonement theories, Nobody is sure what all went down on the cross. When Christians claim that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, how did that happen? Was there some sort of transaction? Was there an alternate reality? Was there another dimension that we have access to? What's the deal? And so different theologians have different ideas on what was actually accomplished on the cross, and these are called atonement theories. If you click on the first link, if you uh, Google atonement theories, the first link will tell you there's eight atonement theories. The second one will tell you there are 16 atonement theories. How many are there? 
I think uh, some will tell you there are actually dozens of atonement theories. Nobody's quite sure how all the different theories overlap and uh, sort of part ways, uh, which one is a repeat of one before, because it's all kind of mysterious to us. So the first thing I want to acknowledge is that I've never met a human being or read a book that fully explained what happened actually on the cross. We know that something happened and we have some ideas and the passage that was read for us today, it has puts forth some theories, touches on some metaphors, but we're all sort of uh, groping in the dark about it somewhat. And so the best that I think, the, the honest and best thing we can do is uh, boil it down to some practical, clear metaphor and work it until it breaks down. And then you sort of hop over to another metaphor, and that's why you end up with 16 or 60 atonement theories. The best minds have thought about this, and they cannot boil it down to one thing that happened. What we know is that Jesus died on the cross, that he was an innocent man, he was wrongfully accused. Uh, he went through a mock trial. He was tortured. He was abandoned by all of his friends and family. And he was all alone. He was put up on a cross, erected on a cross, hanging there in shame. He was forsaken by God. And he bled and he died. And his followers claim that on the third day, some force outside of him, because he was dead, Something went into his dead body and raised him from the dead. And Christians claim that that's the Holy Spirit. And that the same power that went into the dead body of Christ now is available to us. And so we don't die on the cross in dramatic fashion the way he did. But it allows us to die lots of deaths knowing that death has no power over us. We're not under the lie that death has power over us. That somehow Jesus defeated death. That's the language. You hear the word defeated death? That means there was a fight. That means there were powers clashing. And Jesus won. He's Christus Victor. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today. But I don't want to stay up at 30,000 feet. I want to bring it down to as concrete a level as possible today. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to tell two very embarrassing stories about myself. Now, I've been doing this so long, too long, that I lose, I've lost sensitivity to what my stories actually are. And so I ran these stories by Susie to uh, get her okay that I should tell these. And she said, you know what? Go for it. Tell these stories, but not without disclaimers or some caveats. So here are the disclaimers. They make me look really, really bad. And... Um, I just have excuses now filling my brain why it's not that bad. But actually, it makes me look really bad because it was terrible. It was bad. But I want you to identify with it and then see if we can understand the larger, more general principle from these very specific stories. Uh, here's a quote that I have really been appreciating lately. In the specific is the general, in the personal, the universal. So we know this is true uh, for example, uh, other people's conversations are absolutely irresistible, aren't they? Like, you can be hearing noise and you can tune that out. But if it's somebody having a specific conversation on the phone, 
in a small space, you can't not listen to it. It's too interesting. Because in their specific conversation, you experience universality, like human nature, the patheticness of, of human beings and the minutiae they which, like they spend time and energy talking about nothing that matters. And you find that fascinating, right? Another example of this is when I was meeting with uh, uh, a writer and I was asking him, you know, what's the key to writing a good book? And uh, he said, the narrower your target, the broader your appeal. Right? So he said, think of one actual human being that you're writing for. Write it for that person and that person only. Don't worry about everybody else, and then it'll reach everybody else. And this is really, really true. You know, when you learn about storytelling, the more specific you get, you don't just say car, you say a red car, you say uh, a late model car. And then people tune in a little bit more. The more specific you can make it. It wasn't just down the street. It was down 40th Avenue. And people tune in. Right? That's the way that works. So let's take something very specific, like my two stories, and then let's see if we can identify with it in a more general and universal way. Okay, before we do that, I'm going to read you what Christianity Today has to say. It's a magazine, probably one of the more popular Christian magazines. And this, this specific atonement theory of Christus Victor has been uh, really more popular and embraced over the last 10 or 15 years. And so in 2011, Christianity Today did a whole piece on this one atonement theory looking at its upsides and downsides. And every theory has got upsides and downsides. It says this, Christ is victor. Christ in his death and resurrection overcame the hostile powers that hold humanity in subjection. Those powers variously understood as the devil, sin, the law, and death. While the model assumes humanity's guilt for getting ourselves into this predicament, the theory's anthropology emphasizes not our guilt, but our victimhood at least the way it is often discussed today. The main human problem, it states, is that we are trapped and we need to be rescued. And it's based on these verses from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there you have it. We were trapped we were enslaved. We had power that was oppressing us. And Jesus, the greater power, came. He battled it out with the powers, the rulers, the authorities, and he won. He obtained victory. He is triumphant, and he set us free. So we'll talk about freedom next week with Dave Selvig as our storyteller. But first, a couple of my stories. Uh, number one. Almost two decades ago, I still remember what we were having for dinner. I remember the exact seat around the table I was sitting. I remember the lighting in the room. I'm sitting down with a woman from California, and she was sharing about her insecurities very honestly with me as a mom, as a contributor to her family's financial needs, uh, how she's doing as a wife, just riddled with insecurities. And she's sort of going through them one by one in uh, candor and detail. And prior to this moment, she had shared with me about her insecurities comparing herself to her, quote-unquote, perfect sister. 
who was beautiful. She was physically fit. She's an amazing homeworker. After a season of staying at home, she went back to her career and made it even more successful than before. Her kids, it turns out, are beautiful and smart and well-adjusted. And her husband, uh, she married him when he was wealthy. is wealthier than ever before. And he's competent, and he loves her, he adores her. The perfect life her sister has. And then I just, as a rookie pastor, already the excuses are starting. I'm not just a pastor, I'm a rookie pastor now. I wanted to, my instinct was, I wanted to instill confidence in her. Like, that's, that was like what I grabbed for. Confidence is what she's missing. Confidence is what she needs. I am going to deliver confidence. That's what I thought. I'm going to do this. And I started to uh, take my first whack at this by talking, agreeing with her about how amazing her sister is because I had met her. And then I proceeded to say something to the effect of, I think you can be just like your sister. Basically, if you try hard enough. Now, a lot of you women are cringing. A lot of the men are like, are you getting to the bad part yet? And honestly, two decades later, I still don't really get it. My intent was, you come from good stock. If you just try harder, you'll get there. Okay, what happened, uh, happened in the room, in the space between us. It happened. It started happening inside of me as I saw what was happening to her. Like everything was just unraveling really, really fast. And on top of that, I was really confused about why it's unraveling. Like, what was the crime again? I was trying to do right by you. I was trying to be helpful to you. Uh, but it didn't work. Uh, there was an energy drop between us. You know, whatever signal strength we had in that conversation was gone. Like no bars at all, you know? And then I started to see the final kiss of death, the tears in the eyes. Just, and immediately, immediately, I can tell what she wanted to say was, how could you? But she didn't say it, you know? And you know what I did? My first go-to was I tried to dig out from under it. And I just tried to backpedal. Never works. It didn't work that time either. And then I try to compensate by saying nice things about her, like just trying to throw boxes of Costco-sized Band-Aids at her. And uh, it didn't work either. And then uh, when that didn't work, I thought, you know what? Screw her. It's her fault. She doesn't understand that I'm just a rookie pastor. This is my like, first year in ministry. Cut me a break, lady. What is wrong with you? And so I started listing out all the reasons for why she should totally be okay with this. Like my first year in ministry, right? Your fault for setting up an appointment with me. Also, it's like my fifth or seventh meeting that day. I was really down to fumes. I had no energy left in me. I was reach. I was trying to do. My, it's late at night. All these excuses started lining up. And here's what excuses are. You know, it sounds legitimate in my brain. It makes sense. It like fills out the story, right? It's the context. But in reality, what's happening is, why aren't you wise enough to take into account that I'm a rookie? It's your lack of wisdom that's the fault. The real problem is here is you, your narrow vision. 
You lack wisdom. You lack character. You don't understand how life works. It's all just a defense mechanism. But it sounds just like context. But really, they're excuses. But I didn't have the psychological or emotional resources, the agility to do the right thing, to just really address what was happening in the room. All I could do was go to trying to dig out from under it, and then I started putting her down, and then when that didn't go well, the meeting ended, and then guess what happened after the meeting? I just avoided her for a long time. Now, the story has a different ending, and I'll get to it later, but for now, story number two, because let's dig the grave deeper for Peter. I didn't even realize these would be saying bad things about me until Susie pointed it out. That's how, just, I don't know. Okay, now this is a little bit later. So I'm, 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 I'm a little bit more seasoned. This is year two of ministry. Uh, I was meeting with a woman over dinner again. I remember exactly where we were and what we were eating. And uh, we had spent about maybe 20, 30 minutes uh, talking about her husband. And she had a long list of complaints about her husband. And suddenly, I had a light bulb go off in my head. Just recently, I had read one article, one article only. I had, prior to this, had read nothing about this issue, nor had I had any conversations about this issue. I was sort of the cutting edge on this one, as far as pastors go. One article about overbearing mothers and absent fathers. And one of the theories they presented uh, was that uh, if you have an overbearing mother or an absent father, you may struggle with uh, gay, being gay. That's what the article said. And this article popped into my brain when I'm talking with this wife about her husband. And I know, it's a terrible story. Okay, but this is a true story. I suggested to her that all of her complaints actually boil down to one root cause. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's where I went. I said, you know, I really think that maybe your husband is gay. <laughs> yep. Yep. I will pack up my things. <laughs> Please don't fire me. So, you know, that was, that was 19 years ago, right? She went home in great angst and relayed to her husband my theory, my suggestion. <laughs> the story just keeps going. And he instantly became livid and devastated. And he came after me hard. The next day, he called me up and just rage yelled into the phone about who do I think I am, and what do I know? And he was older than me, and uh, he just let me have it. And he said, he's going to personally see to it that I don't succeed as a pastor at this church, church that I started. And I totally deserved it. But in that conversation, I tried to get in some, like, good things, you know? So my first go-to was I tried to affirm his masculinity, It didn't work. Shockingly, it didn't work. And then I started cataloging, because that didn't work, all the ways 
other ways that he was, he was probably broken as a person. And that's why he's so unforgiving right now. You know, it's his fault, not mine. And when that didn't work, I went to my third phase, which was what? I just avoided him for a while. <laughs> this story also has a different ending, so I'll tell that later. But what are you thinking right now? What are you feeling? Now, somehow, you have to be in a learning space in your brain right now, and you have to say, those are Peter's stories, but I can relate to it. What do you relate to about these stories? What's, what is the general principle at work here in the specifics of my stories? <clears throat> Here's what I think is happening. I think that whenever any of us do wrong, for any reason, to anyone, some version of these four things always happen. It's our human nature. It's our go-to. Here's the first thing that we do. Compensate. We try to compensate to make up for it somehow. Whatever has gone wrong, whatever offensive presumption you've made, you know, whatever uh, offensive thing you said, whatever insensitivity you just... Uh, spewed out there, you, your first instinct is to cover it up. Okay, you compensate. The second thing that you do, I do, we do, is if, when compensating doesn't work and it almost never works, then we deprecate. We have to demonize the other person. Now, demonizing the other person, it sort of is a tricky thing. It's not sort of an outright, you're a demon and I'm an angel thing. It's when you become defensive, like me saying, come on, I'm just a rookie pastor. That doesn't sound like I'm deprecating the other person, but that's exactly what I'm doing. It's experienced by the other person as you being defensive. And if they accuse you of being defensive, you might get defensive about that accusation. But the reason they're accusing you of being defensive is because when you say, come on, I'm just a rookie pastor, what you're saying is you should be more understanding. You should already know that fact. And you should have taken it into account. It's you who are really lacking here, not me. My intentions are beautiful, but you're a fool. Now, you're not saying that, but that's what you're implying every time you try to give context. So that's you, like, on a good day. But on a bad day, you actually start deprecating the other person. You have to cut them down so you don't seem as bad. The way you uh, sort of put a halo around the crime that you committed is by making the other person the devil. There's just no way around it. And we all do it. And when that doesn't work, we disassociate. We leave. We avoid. We abandon. We move on. And maybe we even try to start over with other people or in a different scenario. Now, that's the beginning of death because the final stage is medicate. Sometimes we literally medicate, but often we just have other ways to dull the pain, to cope, but not really face. You know, ways that we try to forget what happened. And that's really the beginning of death when you start medicating in some way, shape, or form, literally or emotionally, psychologically, you start 
medicating yourself because we don't know how to deal with one relational thing. We don't have the ability to just shut off that valve. We have to shut off the whole valve because we only have one reservoir out of which we do life and relationships, right? And so you start just sort of dying a little bit all across the board because of one specific thing. There's like some seed thing that you've spent all this energy, either aware of it or not, you're spending energy covering up this little irritant. Over the years, it happens. Compensate, deprecate, disassociate, and then medicate. Why does this happen? Why do we get triggered to respond this way? Why is it so hard or impossible for us to get out from under our own debt? Because, you know, today's passage, that's what it says. That we do wrong things, and the way we experience that wrongdoing is we feel indebted. Like we owe something to someone. We incur it somehow. You know, and so you kind of feel better when you give something. You give a compliment. That's you compensating. You know, but it doesn't quite pay the debt. You can't get out from under it. And I think that this is really uh, some of the, uh, the best technique we have to solving problems is to throw more problems at it. That's sort of what human beings do. That's the human condition. That's why we see this downward spiral towards death all around us and In our lives, in our personal interactions with each other, we see this. And we see it on a global scale. We see it on a personal scale. scale. It's really universal. It's not just Peter. It's not just you. It's everybody. It's all of us. For all of time, we've been doing some versions of these four things. And maybe even your whole life story, if you ever tell a story, can fit in this way. You incurring debt, and then you spending life trying to get out from under it. Here's what the Bible, today's reading, has to say about this. Verse 8, Paul's warning. See to it that no one takes you captive. And he's describing a default, constant reality of the world in which we live. That all of us are trying to take each other captive all the time because that's the only way we know how to get out from the debt we feel is to make somebody else feel more indebted, make other people owe you stuff, make other people feel bad. It's the age-old saying, hurt people, hurt people. We're always on the lookout for scapegoats or vulnerable targets and victims. That's why there's so much vitriol on Facebook. It's not that the thing that's happening is so bad and they're deeply hurt by it. Sometimes that's true. But it's also true that we are looking for those who are falling so we can kick them when they're down. You know, you think like, if my child falls, I'm not going to go over and point my finger at my child and go, ha, ha, I knew you were going to fall. We would never do that to our own children. Yet, Outside of that circle, as soon as we hear of or see, witness somebody falling, there's a part of our heart that celebrates, that's a little bit relieved. Ah, maybe for just a few seconds, that demon over there can take the spotlight from me. 
There's a kind of bonding that even happens when we stand shoulder to shoulder to mock somebody else. It's a mean girls club. I, I, want, to come us, I want us to come to agreement that this is true. What kind of preacher would I be if I didn't get us to admit that we need other people to do poorly? On some level, some part of us needs each other to fail. And there is a relief we draw from that. That's eight. See to it that no one takes you captive because we are doing that to each other all the time. Verse 15, Paul says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is one of, the, these are, uh, one of the verses where we get our atonement theory for the day. Christus Victor. There's a conflict here. There's a battle. And Christ wins. Right? Christ is triumphant. That's what Paul says here. Uh, but he's not talking about human rulers and authorities here. Paul isn't here. Because Jesus didn't make a public display of them that day. I think eventually maybe there were some turning of hearts in the Roman government, but Rome was still standing on Friday night. There were other people who were crucified on the cross, Roman cross, after Jesus. Their government went on. So what's Paul talking about? And this is uh, the biblical worldview. This is what the Bible says is happening, that the reason, part of the reason why there's so much darkness in this world, why hurt people hurt people, why we get defensive, why we have a need to compensate, deprecate, disassociate, and medicate, why we keep spiraling in this way, why the energy is deathward and not lifeward, why does the energy flow that way? Why is that the normal trajectory of life? And human nature, it's not just because you and I are broken people. There are actually forces, invisible but powerful forces at work, whispering lies into the world. This is what the Bible says is part of reality. And you may be here and you don't believe that world. You may believe it's just human beings. What the Bible teaches us is that we are actually not the most powerful force. That we are basically dead. And in that sense, we are neutral. And there are other powers at work vying to either keep us dead or to make us alive. And Jesus is this counter force that's fighting this invisible but powerful force that's subjecting us, oppressing us, not with human weapons, not with firepower or, or, or you know, uh, physical force, but with lies, with principles. These things that are not true hold us captive. I got a real sort of glimpse into this. Uh, if you go on iTunes and you look at the top, like, uh, I think maybe 10 podcasts, one of them is a crime drama, and it plays out, uh, it's telling the story of this one famous case that changed the way our country is legislated around uh, child abduction and crimes against children. 
to this day, it's the most influential case. It's a crime that went unsolved for 27 years. And here's one thing they know about this one child abduction case. The victim didn't say anything except to ask one question. And then they've asked the question, the child had many chances to escape, but they didn't. Why didn't they run? Why, did they, why didn't they fight? What was keeping the child a captive? And here's the, here's, uh, the fascinating part of the story that stopped me um, when I was listening to it. They said the one thing that the victim said to the perpetrator was to ask this question. What did I do wrong? Now, you may not appreciate why that's heartbreaking at first, but here's this child. He stayed with his captor, not because the captive, captor had him tied up, but because he believed he deserved whatever was happening to him. Now, I don't know what kind of family of origin he comes from, but there was something in him that believed he was worthy of condemnation. And that's what kept him. And that's the sort of the agony of this story. Like, if you wanted to fix this story, if you wanted to turn it around, you have to go back to the way this child was raised. You know, and you have to teach this child uh, a system of how things work that's not punitive. But that's what this child had, and it's this lie that was keeping this child captive. Now, we are all this way in some way, shape, or form. We are all under debt. I was again rereading this week about the imposter syndrome, how all of us, we feel like we're fooling each other. We're all faking it somehow till we make it. And even when we make it, that's fake too because we were fake to begin with. And so that doesn't actually give us, bolster us in any way. That's us, always in debt, always fooling other people. And because of that, we are vulnerable to the lies that are out there that we believe about ourselves, about each other, about our world. There are a lot of lies out there designed to keep us enslaved and under debt. Now, how do we respond to this reality? What does the Bible have to say about turning this ship around? Three things, three principles, and then we close. Uh, the first principle is to understand that works do not work. That's found in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, the word transgression is a little bit different than the word sin. Sin means that you're imperfect. You just miss the mark in general. You fall short. But transgression is specific. It means that there was a line. You saw the line. You understood it, and you crossed it. It's a deliberate wrongdoing. And so when you do that, the Bible teaches that you die. And now, I don't think that happens all in one fell swoop, but we see that even in the human construct, the final stage is Medicaid. That's the beginning of death. So there is a way that we begin to die when we sin. But the reason we die and we stay dead is because we think that we can work ourselves out of our debt. That's us compensating. And it doesn't work. Alternatively, what's the opposite of acknowledging that our own work doesn't work? 
This is the emotional, spiritual, psychological resource we need to get us to turn the ship around. First is an invitation to say, admit, confess, acknowledge. I can't fix this. I can't do it. I can't fix this. Whatever is happening here, I'm sure I'm a huge contributor to it. I can't fix it. That's number one. Number two, I'm sorry. Now, I have come to notice, observe among us, our congregants here, uh, that it's hard to say sorry. It's hard to say sorry, to just say sorry. Now, we're good at having excuses. We're good at contextualizing everything. But to say I'm sorry, period, and nothing else comes after that, is to take responsibility. And I want to tell you, your apology doesn't count. My apology doesn't mean anything until we say I'm sorry, period, and nothing else afterwards. Because everything else that comes after I'm sorry, it's actually an attack on the other person. That's why these three words are so powerful. Take ownership of what you've done. But what allows you to admit that it's your fault? How do you find the resources to do that? Well, because nothing else works. Works do not work. Everything after sorry doesn't work. Did you catch that, by the way? I said sorry. That was my, my shout-out to my Canadian friends. Third, please help me to fix this specific thing. How do we fix this little thing that just happened here? Help me fix it. I want to fix it. And then finally, help me to change. Because if I don't change, then fixing this specific thing doesn't matter. I'll just repeat it somewhere else. So help me actually become a better, different person. Now, how do we say these four things? I can't fix this. I am sorry. Please help me to fix this. Please help me to change. How do we do that? The only way I know this works is if you let your ego die. But you can't let your ego die if your ego is all you have. You need something other than your ego. That's your identity. That's your inner strength. That's the inner resource you need. And what is that? And the Bible teaches that it's Christ. Because the second step is Second principle is power belongs to the powerless. Verse 2, it's about Christ. A true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lots of lies out there, but in Christ is the truth, the only truth that matters. And if you don't believe that, that's fine, but my question to you would be, where else are you going to go? What book are you going to read? You have to go to something because there's a lot of lies out there and you know it. But where do you go? So answer that question for yourself. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Nobody else has the power you need to get out from under the debt you have incurred. 
kept there by the lies you believe. And then verse 13 and following, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The Bible's claim is that Jesus can do for you what you can never do for yourself. Now, you don't have to believe that. But I think at minimum here today, no matter where you're at, you have to acknowledge that you can't do it either by yourself. That you actually are powerless to fix the things and the self that make up your life. You can't fix it. You can't compensate enough. You can't deprecate enough. You can't disassociate and medicate enough. You need some sort of power outside of yourself to turn bad things into good. You need a redemptive energy or love or whatever you want to call it in your life that's greater than you, that may be invisible, but it's powerful. I think you know this. Now, if you become a Christian, it's you acknowledging that Jesus actually has the power and the love and the resources you need. And so you go to him. But if you're not a Christian, you still have to acknowledge you are powerless, that there is a problem. And where will you land today? And finally, the principle, the truth is that it's still not about you. Verse 10, 12, and 13, and in him you have been made complete. You are also raised up with him. He made you alive together with him. Now, Here's what I want to point out, a common mistake, a kind of short-circuiting that Christians do by accident is they believe Jesus did his part in the past, and now it's our turn to do our part, independent of Christ is the implication and is how it plays out. That's not true. We're never okay without Christ now. He did the work he did in the past 2,000 years ago. Christianity claimed Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that that dying on the cross is a means to an end. What's the end? It's Christ in us. It's us in Christ. It's us with him. It's the togetherness with Christ that's the final end. The dying on the cross is a means that allows us proximity, access, togetherness with Christ. We're not okay without him right now. We need him every moment, every day, every hour. We need him. We transgress. We do wrong things. But we do it because we're wrong on the inside. We're broken. We don't just need to fix this. We need to be fixed as a person, as a being. We need to be saved. Our life story needs to be redeemed. Um, in both cases, the, both of the two stories that I told, I'm happy to report that full recovery was made. And both of those relationships are better off today than they would have been if we didn't go through the conflict. Because if you can get through conflict, you're off better. It's when you can't get through it that it becomes worse. 
right? So as soon as you have conflict, your goal should be to go for it. Try to resolve the conflict because if you don't, all you have is loss. So you have nothing to lose by trying to work through it, right? So I think that should be the rule. But what was my key move? What was the move I made to fix things? That's right. I got on my knees and I literally begged for mercy and forgiveness from these two. Said, I'm so sorry. I messed up. And I just stopped there. And I said, I take full responsibility and I need you to forgive me. I just, I can't go on with this relationship like this. It's just putting a dark cloud everywhere over my life. And I can deny it, I can push it off to the side and keep it in my peripheral vision, but it's still impacting me. It's deadening me. It's killing me softly. So I need your help. And we worked together and there was full redemption, meaning it was better than before. God used it for the good. And we've had several rounds of it too. I think it works in rounds. We did lots of post-mortem sessions. And today we are great. We're still in touch. And there's more trust than ever before. But what allows you to get there? What is going to help you to say, I'm sorry, period, nothing else? It's Christ is what I'm saying today. But it's up to you to agree with that and decide for yourself. So I end with this uh, reading uh, from our passage today that I uh, stitched together. In Christ himself are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, and in him you have been made complete, and in him you are also circumcised. You are also raised up with him. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Christ is victor, we are his beloved followers, and in him we live and move and have our being. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we need you every hour, we need you. We thrust ourselves into your merciful hands. We fall at the foot of the cross and we ask for you to forgive us of all our sins. And we ask you to help us to fix things in our life. And we ask you to help us get fixed as people. We look to you for covering. We look to you for filling. We look to you for hope. In Jesus' name, amen.